Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. In our congregation, we've been in the Gospel of Matthew for over a year, and we just reached chapter 6. So I don't know how long we're going to be there, but um, we're on the Lord's Prayer, and uh, I'd like to share uh, what we've been looking through with you. And we're going to look at verses 9 through 13 together. So if you're there, and uh, I would invite you, if, if, if it is uh, within your ability to do so, I'd invite you to stand with me uh, so that we can read this text together. We're going to do uh, an introduction to it. Our congregation will focus on uh, the Lord's Prayer on on each one of the petitions, but um, for today we'll we'll do an introduction to it, and hopefully that will be helpful for us together. Let's start with verse 5 of chapter 6, and our our passage will be verses 9 through 13. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount speaking to his disciples, and uh, he says, And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Uh, Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. And then our, our text for today, verses 9 and on. Um, Pray then like this. Our father 
in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And depending on what uh, version of scripture you have in regards to the textual manuscripts, maybe you might end with a doxology for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory. Uh, but the uh, most manuscripts re end right here with, but deliver us from evil. Uh, let's take a seat and I'd invite you to pray with me. Father in heaven, we continue our worship in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And uh, we just ask for a time of reverent worship by listening to your word. It is your word that is inerrant and infallible. It is us who are fallible and you have promised by your spirit to be our teacher. So be our instructor. Holy Spirit, testify of Jesus Christ and his work through his word and instruct us. For his sake we pray. Amen. My hope and prayer for us uh, is to give an introduction to the Lord's Prayer that we may be taught by our Lord how we should pray, how we should speak before God the Father whom he has reconciled us with. We uh, will, uh, with this hope, make three observations in this text um, that will hopefully allow us to begin to look at the Lord's Prayer in a, in a way that will help us in our prayers uh, this very day. I'm going to give you those three observations ahead of time, and then we'll go through it together. The first observation, if you are taking mental notes with me, is that the Lord's Prayer is directed to Jesus' disciples. The second observation in this text that we're going to be making is that this Lord's Prayer, verses 6 through 9, 13, is a model. It's an example prayer for Christians to follow. Finally, we're going to look at the instructions, those those instructive prayer requests. Um, there's five, and I'll, we'll speak a little bit more about this uh, when we get there. But the final observation is that the Lord's Prayer is instructive in five central or key prayer requests that should be part of everyday life for the Christian. Okay? With that in mind, um, let's go with that first point. I think this is a, a very important one to understand the Lord's Prayer. Let's look at verse 9 together. Uh, the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says in verse 9, pray then like this, and, and in the original language is you then, you must, you all must pray then like this, our Father in heaven. I remember as a new Christian reading this uh, Lord's Prayer, I was going in uh, through the Gospels like many of you probably have, and when, when I got to this phrase, just the very beginning phrase, our Father, I, I had to stop. I had to stop, and one of the questions I asked myself is, how in the world did this happen? How did, how, how did we get to address the Almighty God as Father? I mean, you, you can go back through um, the scriptures, and you remember uh, Mount Sinai, and as he comes, the, the mountain trembles. The, the smoke and the fire I mean, there, there's thunder from heaven. And, and he says to Israel, you've you got to keep your distance, for if you come near, you will die. 
And I mean, and, and what about the encounter before that? Remember Moses coming up to the burning bush? And as Moses comes up uh, to the burning bush, what is he told as Yahweh speaks at the burning bush? Hey, hey, Moses, hold on a second. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. As we come to this text, we, can't, we cannot skip this blessed phrase, our Father, that is spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ. The first observation that we must look at this text, look in this text, is that this blessed phrase, in this manner you shall pray, our Father who art in heaven, is a phrase that is being directed to a specific group of people. If you go back to chapter 5, verse 1 through 2, you can turn there if you like, or you can just listen. It says, and he sat down, this is uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and he sat down, Jesus, and his disciples came to him. Verse 2, and he opened up his mouth, and he taught them. This phrase, our fathers, found several times in this chapter, and it's not by any means accidental As Jesus is instructing, that's what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples. Just go back to chapter six, and I want you to do this exercise with me. It's a bit of an exegetical exercise. We're going to look at this text and look at at a phrase that he's been repeating over and over again. Look at verse one. Just look at it really quick. You can't miss it. Your father who is in heaven. Look at verse four. Your father who sees in secret. And and look at verse six, it's repeated twice there. Your father, and then again, your father. Verse seven, your father. Verse nine, our father. As you go through the text, verse 14, verse 15, you continue to go on to verse 18. It's repeated there twice again. And you keep going down this chapter in the Sermon on the Mount. You keep on repeating it in verse 26 and forward, and you get to verse 32. This phrase is intentionally repeated by our Lord to his disciples, and he keeps on repeating to them this this theological statement with great implications. You can approach the Father. In other words, the Lord's prayer is given to his disciples. Disciples, Uh, Matthew will define exactly what a disciple is. He'll keep on repeating that phrase uh, when Jesus says, come and follow me and define discipleship for us. Uh, Disciples, according to Matthew, are those sinners who have come to the Savior, who have come to the one whom God has sent for their salvation. uh, Matthew 121, you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Those disciples are those who are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. To quote the beloved Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, these words, these words, in this manner you will pray, tells us who can pray and what the privileges of access are for them. Oh, dear friends, what we are reading in this statement right here, our first observation, it, it, it rises up as a question that I ask myself as a new believer reading the Lord's Prayer. How did this happen? The, the scriptures are clear that we were enemies of God. The scriptures are clear that we were descendants of Adam fallen in nature, destined for the wrath of God. Isn't that what Paul instructs in Ephesians 2? 
You were dead in trespasses and sins, sons of disobedience, objects of wrath. The question must arise, how did this happen? And as you continue reading the pages of Matthew's gospel, you will eventually get to the answer. And the answer is found there at Gethsemane. It's found there in Matthew chapter 26. It's found there in the garden. It's found there in chapter 27. It's Jesus Christ, the just one, the eternal son of God, becoming flesh, sent by the Father, submitting to the Father in perfect obedience to become the perfect, sufficient, atoning sacrifice for sin. And why? Well, the epistles teach us this over and over again. 1 Peter 3.18, the just suffering for the unjust that we may be brought to God. As we look at this, dear friends, dear church, we can't help but take a stop here and ask the question, how did this happen? And the answer directs us to Jesus. It is Jesus speaking these words to his disciples, and it's his way of saying, you who are in union with me have perfect union with my Father. When you come in prayer, you can address him. You can enter past the veil because of what has occurred in the cross. In the words of the beloved Robert Murray Machine, in prayer, how sweet to feel before him, to kneel at his footstool and to put our hand upon the mercy seat with no curtain, no veil, no cloud between the soul and God. We cannot just simply pass uh, the Lord's Prayer without halting every time we get to say, Our Father. And the very first observation I would appeal to you is that as you pray, Our Father, you pray it with that in mind, with a, with a pause that centers in the gospel and our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and please allow me to say something else before we make our next observation. This also means that apart from Jesus, there is no right as children's with this type of communion. As one author said, observing this phrase that Jesus is teaching his disciples, this is how you pray. He said the following, it is a prayer for Christ's disciples who alone have the right to call God Father. Apart from union with Jesus Christ, dear friends, we must be crystal clear that the implications of the words our Lord Jesus is stating here is that there are no rights as children and no communion and fellowship with God the Father apart from Him. It is He who grants access to the hearer. It is He who grants access to the disciple. It is you who are allowed to pray this way because you are mine. Therefore, Apart from him, Jesus makes it crystal clear the exclusivity of being in union with Christ is how we reach our relationship in perfect communion with the Father. To quote the Apostle John in John 1.12, this is a right given to all those who receive him, who believe in his name. For to them, and the idea there is to them alone, has he given the right to be called children of God. So, so as a preacher and pastor, I must take the opportunity and not assume that if there be anyone here today who is not in Christ, young or old, if there be anyone here today who has not surrendered their life in faith to Christ, you stand here condemned under the righteous requirements of the laws of God. 
and one day must answer before his holy tribunal. The wrath is coming. The judgment is coming. And this relationship that Jesus establishes here of calling God your father does not belong to you today. But there is good news. And this room must surely be filled with sinners who have found refuge in the one whom the father has sent. The beloved Jesus Christ who died for the guilty who rose on the third day and is seated at the right hand of the majesty and offers mercy to any and all sinners who come to him. He offers the right to be called children of God. So I dare appeal if there be anyone here who is not found in Christ, find refuge in him. For he grants privileges to sit at his table and gives them inheritance. Our second observation is that this is a model prayer. Look at verse 9 with me. Jesus continues to address his disciples, and he says, pray then like this. Uh, Pray in this way, in this manner, in this kind of way is the understanding of the language. This means that the Lord's prayer is meant to be used as a model, as a guide, and not simply an exact repetition of words, although there's nothing against liturgical use of the Lord's Prayer, but there is something wrong in using it mechanically. The means, uh, this means, pray then like this, that it is meant to be used as a model and as a guide and not simply an exact repetition of words that must be repeated every time we pray mechanically without thinking. As one writer correctly observes, like this indicates that what follows is meant to be a guide and a model rather than a set form of words. Or to quote the beloved uh, James Montgomery Boyce once more, as he correctly observed, I have called this a model prayer, for that is what it is. Jesus did not say, this is what you should pray. He said, this is how you should pray. Meaning that our request should be along these lines. In other words, our second observation has to do that our our Lord Jesus is not giving his disciples a script to recite mechanically or words to be repeated mindlessly, but instead is giving his disciples a model, an example, a guide, a pattern of how the prayers of the forgiven should sound like. This is what the prayers should consist of. This is what the regenerate and the forgiven uh, pray for. It is important uh, to not divorce uh, uh, this, this Lord's prayer from its context. Our Lord Jesus has already made it very clear how we are not to pray. Consider verse five. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, reference to the religious hypocrites. Matthew 6, 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. It is important that we do not divorce it from the context. Our Lord Jesus has already taught us not to pray like religious Hypocrites who pray insincerely. That was the condemnation. They pray insincerely. It's all for a show. It is uh, for an audience, but not to God. They, They pray to God, not to be heard by God, but that they may be seen by men to appear to be speaking to God. Don't don't pray like that. It's insincere uh, prayers. Do not add that to the way we pray. And then do not pray like the pagans in verse seven. Uh, Reference to Gentiles, those who do not know God who pray cold, disconnected, mechanical, 
manipulative prayers. The Gentiles would see prayers as, as a way of manipulating the gods, thinking that if they said a certain amount of words or just the right words, they would be heard. Jesus condemns both. He is not a distant deity. He is present and very personal. Christ Jesus in his cross has brought us near and he wants his saints to not pray a certain way. I share this with you because we must not forget the context. I don't know if you have any friends here or, or Christians here who come from a Roman Catholic background, but my, my family does. And in it, it is very easy and it's also possible within the Protestant uh, uh, church to, to use prayers mechanically. Oh, the father says, oh, recite the, the Pater Noster a certain amount of times. And, and sometimes you don't even understand the language you're saying mindlessly. Well, we are not to understand it in this way. The Lord's Prayer is a model. When looking at the Lord's Prayer, we are to see it as a guide to how we should pray sincerely, intimately before the Father. Our third observation, the Lord's Prayer is instructive in five central prayer requests, which should be a part of all of our lives. Now, there is a bit of debate on how many prayer requests are found in verses 9 through 13. We're not going to enter into it. Some say seven, some say there are six, and some argue five. But briefly, just looking at the passage carefully, considering the Hebrew background to it, the poetic structure of it, and considering the parallel passage of the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11, in Luke 11, we are also instructed on the Lord's Prayer. And we find parallels. If we were to match both of those prayers, there are five fundamental, five key requests that, that fit perfectly with one another. Having said this, uh, my argument is in light of this, that there are five key requests in here. The first request that we should be adding to our prayers or allow them to dominate and saturate our prayers as the forgiven and the redeemed is found in verse nine. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed. The word means sanctify, to revere, to highly and supremely honor, to hold in high respect. And what is it that we are praying here to be honored, sanctified and supremely honored? Hallowed be your name. Your name is a Hebraism to speak of all that God is. Every part, every, all his perfections, all his attributes, every part of who he is, all that he is. What is it that we're praying here for? What is it that our Lord is instructing us to, to be central to our petitions in everyday life? For the triune God to be recognized as holy. For the triune God to be recognized as highly and supremely worthy of all honor, to be revered for all that he is, all his perfections, all his attributes, to be held in reverence. The petition would sound something like this. May God be reverenced and highly respected and honored in all of life. That includes my family. That includes my local church in our city, in our nation, among the nations, in the world. But as one of my seminary profs would often remind me, most significantly, he would say, may God be sanctified through you. 
in all of your life, at every moment of the day, in every area of your life. May it be evident that Christ is holy in my thinking. May it be evident that Christ is revered and honored in my speech. May it be evident that Christ is to be respected and supremely valued in my workplace, in all of life. Do we pray this way? For our Lord instructs us that this is something that must saturate our prayers. And by the way, the implication is that the redeemed, the forgiven, the regenerate desire this. The second petition, your kingdom come. The second request is found in verse 10. Has to do with the reign, the rule, the government of the God of all the heavens being fully made known, fully visible, fully manifested on earth. That is what the petition is about. And here in verse 10, we're seeing that Hebrew Aramaic poetic structure, the background to it that I mentioned earlier, um, because the second part of verse 10 further amplifies or elaborates the request. In other words, it specifies exactly what he means we should pray when we're asking your kingdom come. What is it that we're asking? Well, look at the latter part of verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A paraphrase would sound something like this. May all who live on earth desire, love, trust, obey your commands. Your good rule, your reign, your kingdom, just as the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angelic beings and armies in the heaven love, desire, trust, and joyfully obey everything you say, desire, and command. In other words, it is not just a plea for God's new heaven and new earth to come. It most certainly is. But it is not just a sincere pray, prayer and petition and plea for a final eschatological kingdom of God and his reign, and it most certainly is. But it is more than this. It is a prayer for God to have his way in all this earth. For God to have his way in me. It is a phrase of saying, not my way, Lord, but your way, Lord. Not my will, Lord, but your will, Lord, be carried in all of life. And again, the clear implication here is that every sinner who knows the forgiveness and grace of God in Christ Jesus desires the will of God. And is this not true? Do you remember your past before Christ? Did you desire the will of God? Was that something that that grabbed your attention and that you considered? We desired our will in our way. Part of the gift of the Messiah and Jesus Christ and his cross is the gift of regeneration, the gift of being born again, where the will has changed. The law of God prophesied by Jeremiah is written in the heart of man. And now we desire to walk in his ways. Though we find ourselves at Gethsemane, we find ourselves relating to the Lord Jesus Christ, not my will, but yours be done. May your will be done in whatever situation that we are in. And friends, at times, the will of the Lord will be quite contrary to what you seem to be asking. 
Nonetheless, according to our Lord Jesus, it is a petition that saturates the forgiven sinner. It does not matter what my earthly or fleshly desire may be. What I crave more, what I desire more, is what your way, your perfect way, would be. We continue on, and we see the request further in the third request. Third request is found in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. In the third request, we acknowledge God our Father as the sole source of our provision for what we need most. The petition for bread is meant to be understood as a metonym. A metonym uh, is a, a, a literary device uh, that we use to speak of a part, uh, but not just a part, but of the larger whole. So for example, um, when uh, two people, are, uh, the husband and the wife are getting married and, and the question is asked, do you take her hand in marriage? That's a, a, a metonym. You're speaking not just of her hand, right? The, the, the husband's not just taking her hand, he's taking the whole person, hopefully. That's what we're asking for. Well, that is what we find here in this text when he says, give us this day our daily bread. It's not just speaking of bread. It's speaking of what we need the most for life. Give us what we need to live. Uh, the daily bread, notice that. It's, it's daily bread. Give me what I need most today. This daily bread phrase, this give us this day our daily bread is a clear, clear picture, a clear word picture referring to the manna that fell from heaven in Exodus 16. That's where we, we first see this, this idea of daily bread. You remember Exodus 16. Yahweh has them in the desert. They're supposed to trust and depend on Yahweh. Yahweh is their savior. He is the one who has rescued them. In him is life. He is the very source of life. He has all power, all authority. To him is whom they should trust and cling to. And there in the manna, as, as there in the desert, as they were craving and in need of food, he provided it from heaven. And it fell what they needed to survive, to live, to be in union and connection and in trust with God. And he told them, only, only take enough for today. I will provide what you need tomorrow. In fact, it was very strict that anyone who would take more than what was allotted to him, he took it as an offense that they would not trust his provision for the latter. This is definitely the picture that our Lord Jesus is giving as he stands at, at the mountain as a greater Moses, speaking to the new covenant people. He's speaking to them of the bread that he has provided by the Father in whom he has promised to always provide what they need. The teaching lesson is this. God knows what we need most. He has promised his new covenant people he will provide what they need most he is what we need most and we must trust god daily to provide it what do you need most i was speaking to a man who has been dying of cancer and he's at his last days part of his prayer seen him a few times, and not the last time I saw him, but the one before that. I said, well, how, how could I pray for you, brother? And he said, I want to die. Can't take this pain anymore. 
please ask him to take me. I said, well, we'll ask. But if it's important that, that we know if you know Christ and, and if it's his will for you to go right now. So we prayed. A week passed and he did not die. And I thought he, he was very near, near it. I mean, you see him and, and you can tell he's literally grasping with final breaths. We came and as we came, he, he started to talk about some of the things that have happened in his Christian life. He started to confess sins. Things that he had never told anyone. He even confessed that he had taken uh, something from the church that he never gave back and it's still in his house. After that, he, he said, I, I need him to forgive me. He started to confess sins and ask for the forgiveness of the Lord in his life. And then he said one more thing. He said, you know, I never, I never got to tell my kids. I never got to pastor them the way I should have. Never, never taught them the scriptures the way I should have. Now it's too late. I said, uh, friend, it is not your time to go yet. Whatever the days that he gives you, whether they're hours or three days or four days, spend the rest of it. Spend the rest of it telling your sons that Jesus Christ forgives sinners. I share this as a form of illustration that sometimes we ask and we don't know what we need most, but he does. This is the instruction given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. Ask him for what you need most. And sometimes it's not bread. Sometimes it's the very lack of bread that the Lord must give to you. But whatever it is that you need, give that to me. As the wise Solomon said, two things I ask of thee. Deny them not before I die. Proverbs 37 and on. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me. Lest I be fool and deny thee and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. What is Solomon asking for? Give me what I need to stay near to you. Whatever that may be. The fourth petition. Perhaps some were dreading to get here already. Perhaps some came in here and as soon as we heard the Lord's prayer, the phrase, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, already started to haunt us. In the fourth petition, in the 12th verse, our Lord Jesus calls us to ask continuously for the forgiveness that we need. Not because he has not paid for it on the cross, not because the cross is insufficient, it has to do with asking God to not allow us to forget our need for him. It has to do, this petition, forgive us our debts, with asking God continuously to never allow us to forget the forgiveness that we need today, tomorrow, and forever, which is not found apart from Christ. The reason I say this is because of Jesus' statement immediately after forgive our debts, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do you know why Christians sometimes find it hard to forgive? I'm talking about real Christians, born-again Christians. Even them, even them, they find it hard to forgive. Do you know why? According to Jesus in Matthew 18.35 and Matthew 16.14, which you will elaborate this more, it has to do with forgetting what has been forgiven. 
to quote John Stott, this certainly does not mean that our forgiveness of others earns us the right to be forgiven. We are not to understand it in the text. It is rather that God forgives only the penitent and that one of the chief evidences of true penitence is a forgiving spirit. Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offenses against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. So then why do you find it hard to forgive, O Christian? There can be but two possible answers. You are forgetting what you have been forgiven. Or worse, you have not yet been forgiven and do not understand. The final petition is found in verse 13. Lead us not into temptation. Let us not misunderstand this last request. And most certainly God is sovereign above all things and in all things, whether we understand them or not. But let us not misunderstand this last request. And before we conclude something here that shouldn't be concluded in this text, Jesus makes it clear as to what this petition means. When our Lord Jesus says, after lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. This is the amplification of the request. Uh, the original language actually reads, it specifically reads, deliver us from the evil one. A reference to Satan and the trials that he would bring before, or the temptations he would bring before us to cause us to stumble that the Lord who has redeemed us may be blasphemed by the Gentiles and pagans. The request of verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, is one of recognizing that victory from temptation and schemes and the sinful desires that we still battle from is not found in you. It is found in no one else but at the feet of Christ alone and humility, humble dependence for God as our source of strength and deliverance. It is what the psalmist prayed in Psalm 23. Do you remember the psalmist in Psalm 23? Lead me into paths of righteousness for your name's sake. This is a parallel request. Deliver me, Lord, from sinning against thee in a way that your name would be dishonored. Charles Spurgeon sums up this petition quite well when he prayed it. Charles Spurgeon, praying this request, said, Oh, Father, if I must be tried, Lord, deliver me from falling into evil and especially preserve me from that evil one. Preserve me from that evil one who above all seeks my soul to destroy it. Lord, do this for me, for I cannot preserve myself. This is what we find in the request. It is a sheep who goes to his shepherd. For he knows, as A.W. Tozer said, that Satan is not afraid of the sheep. He is afraid of the shepherd. The Lord's Prayer, it can be summed up in two sincere, or three sincere, please. O oh, Sovereign Father, I love and desire you. O oh, Sovereign Father, I need and seek you. Are we catching the Lord's Prayer? It is a pursuit of God. 
What we catch is a man who has been forgiven, a woman who has been forgiven by the cross. We're seeing the child, the adolescent, the elderly, the one dying in the hospital who has been reconciled to God the Father by the cross, and there his face is on the ground. And he pleads, O blessed Father in heaven, do you know that I love thee? Do you know that I need thee? Do you know that I desire thee above all and everything else? Do we pray like this? May this week be saturated with the sincere requests of the redeemed. For my guess is the Lord always answers yes to each of these requests. I invite you to pray with me. Oh, Father, Thank you for your son. Thank you for giving us to your son. We want to live for him. Want to honor you. And we can't do this without you. Keep us faithful for your glory. Keep us spiritually hungry, for you are worthy to be known and seen as of supreme worth. Take away those things that are causing us to stumble. We know, we know very fearfully what that could mean, Father. But we want your will. We want your way. We want your kingdom and your reign. In Jesus' name, amen.